0: This Christmas weekend on Art of the Air features host of the weekly radio show, Under the Influence, Terry O'Reilly, discussing his over 30-year career in advertising. Next, we have harp guitarist Muriel Anderson, whose newest album, Sailing Dreams, was inspired by her sailing adventure. Our spotlights on Valpo University professor Ben brobes exhibit featuring an exploration of artificial intelligence.
1: Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. You're in the know with Esther and Larry. Art on the air today. Stay in the know with Mary and Esther. Art on the air our way. Express yourself, hard and show the world your heart. Express yourself, art, and show the world.
0: Welcome, you're listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Media, 89.1 FM, WVLP 103.1 FM, our weekly program covering the arts and arts events throughout Northwest Indiana and beyond. I'm Larry Breckner of New Perspectives Photography, right alongside here with Esther Golden of The Nest in Michigan City.
2: Aloha, everyone.
0: We're your hosts for Art on the Air. Art on the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant, South Shore Arts, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Art in the Air is heard every Sunday at 7 p.m. on Lakeshore Public Media, 89.1 FM, also streaming live at lakeshorepublicmedia.org, and is available on Lakeshore Public Media's website as a podcast. Also heard on Friday at 11 a.m. and Monday at 5 p.m. on WVLP, 103.1 FM, streaming live at wvlp.org, and Tuesdays at 4 p.m. on WDSO 88.3 FM. Our spotlight interviews are also heard Wednesdays on Lakeshore Public Media. Information about Art on the Air is available at our website, breck.com AOTA. That includes a complete show archive, spotlight interviews, plus our show is available on multiple podcast platforms, including NPR One. Please like us on Facebook, Art on the Air, WVLP, for information about upcoming shows and interviews. We'd like to welcome to art in the air spotlight from valparaiso university who has an exhibit going on in this area of artificial intelligence where he's also a professor there uh it's ben Brope renault and he's going to tell us a little bit about the exhibit but also what he's doing there at valparaiso university ben welcome to art in the air spotlight yeah
1: Thanks for uh-huh.
3: having me. so my name is ben Brope i um i teach at valparaiso university in the arts departments i mean the arts section of communication and visual arts Um, And I teach sort of the odds and ends, um, which I feel really lucky to do. So I teach courses on ideation, media storytelling, um, printmaking. I'm teaching a course on making comics. And then this spring, a course on art and AI, which has to do with this show. So last year, um, as in the fall, where there started to be lots of stories about ChatGPT and MidJourney and E and a lot of these text and image generating uh, programs. And there was a lot of consternation and uncertainty. Um, I joined a faculty reading group that was dealing with, particularly from the writing side, what does this mean pedagogically? What does this mean for us as teachers? How does this complicate both fears of plagiarism, but also fears of how can we effectively teach process of writing, process of learning, um, if we need to navigate artificial intelligence having a role. And that was a really fruitful discussion. Um, and I, but I felt like I, I was the only person dealing with the visual end. Everyone else was because of their backgrounds, focused on focused on more text generation side. Um, and I, I was really curious about how the the visual end could manifest, how it could, impact arts and other creative approaches and 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 less in a in a paranoid or fearful way but I I was really curious about how this could be used as both a tool and potentially a sort of collaborator Um, I I think because I, I spent so much of my childhood reading science fiction for me AI was always just This thing that I just kind of assumed was going to be playing a large role, even before it was legitimately possible. And so, I, for me, I I think I feel like I missed the fear and uncertainty part. Not that it's not terrifying in so many ways, but I'm just more curious. And maybe that's also the thing that led me to, you know, be an artist to look at teaching art as well. Um, And again, from standpoint of a teacher, I've got this beautiful gift of being able to, like, I'm curious about this thing. Let's do a class about it um, and have that as a jumping off point for my own learning, like an excuse to go like learn as you go. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what makes this job so exciting. And, um, and so that, that naturally led into proposing a class and as I was building out assignments, that led into well, I should be making I should be making a show of work because I knew the Brower was looking for some to fill some slots, and I, I figured if I make a bunch of images over the summer, then that becomes the starting point for a lot of discussions with with my colleagues, with people across campus, with folks from the community, and that was that's what I'm most excited about with AI. I mean, I, I can I can see how. Um, how it could become part of my own process uh, in a tangential kind of way. But I was mostly looking at what is the discussion with this? How can we do this? And rather than looking at it from the standpoint of let's make some perfect, beautiful images. uh, I I kept thinking about this photographer named Lucas Blalock, who has this photography practice. That's really interesting, but then he also, uses Photoshop in what he describes as a really dumb way. He tries to <laughs> use the simplest tools, he tries to make mistakes, and the resulting images are some of the most fascinating things I've seen. So I tried to bring that approach to making these images. I was using a program named called Midjourney, and um, I don't, don't have time to talk about the whole show, but one of the things that I, I got really excited about was making landscapes. The Brower has this amazing collection of Junius uh, of Sloan landscapes, and um, so I was, I was using really simple text prompts to make these images that I was really charmed by, that they look they look pretty good. The colors are great. The forms are, are lovely. They look like traditional landscapes. Um, you know, referring to, there's things that look a little bit like Grandma Moses, a few that look a little bit like Grant Wood, like Frederick Edwin Church. And, but they all, they all had these mistakes in them. They kept winding up with, with sheep with three heads, you know, <laughs> with cows with five legs. And I realized really quickly that this is because, at least right now, the AI program is only. It only has essentially the mathematics. The idea that if you put in idyllic pastoral landscape, it usually includes these things, but it lacks the intuition to know that a sheep doesn't have two butts. And so there were all these these these, these mistakes. And I'm assuming that this this will get ironed out in, as the as the programs get more and more sophisticated. But I, I was really charmed by these these flaws, and I thought that they were they had had all this potential for discussion. And so the Jonathan Canning, the curator, and I. Uh, I guess he's the director, not the curator. Um, we paired these with landscapes from the Brower collection as a kind of dialogue, which then led to dialogue with the guests.
2: Um, so and- I have a I have a really quick question about that. Yeah. So when you're doing the landscape, if if this cow or sheep is in the distance, is this is this flaw, or is it is it evident on first glance, or is it with deeper scrutiny that you see the
3: the image looks too normal for it to be noticed right away. So yeah,
2: that's off. so interesting. Cool. Yeah.
0: Well, we only have a few moments here. So when's, how long is the exhibit up and uh, running? And tell us a little briefly about that in our last 30 seconds.
3: The, the exhibit should run through the end of the semester. So that's December. And the Brouwer, um, barring uh, school holidays, is open from Wednesday through Saturday in, in the afternoon. And do you have a website? Uh, I do not. Uh, the Brouwer does. Um, and, that, and there should be information posted there and to their social media as well.
0: We appreciate coming on Art in the Year Spotlight. That's Ben Props Renault from uh, Valparaiso University about his AI exhibit running through the end of December. Thank you so much for coming on Art in the Year Spotlight. So Glad interesting.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Art in the Year Spotlight and the complete one-hour program on Lakeshore Public Media is brought to you by Macaulay Real Estate in Valparaiso, Olga Patrician, Senior Broker. And as a reminder... If you'd like to have your event on Art on the Air Spotlight or have a longer feature interview, email us at aota at breck.com. That's aota at breck, And Art on the Air encourages our loyal listeners to support this station by making a monthly sustaining pledge so we may continue to bring you this great program.
3: This is Whitney Reynolds of The Whitney Reynolds Show, and you are listening to Art on the Air on Lakeshore Public Media, 89.1 FM, and on
2: WVLP, 103.1 FM. We are pleased to welcome Terry O'Reilly to Art on the Air. Terry is the host of Under the Influence. His radio show keynote talks and his books are dedicated to breaking down the art of persuasion by looking back and gazing forward. He is a 30-plus year admin who discusses the bigger issues of marketing and how it affects the public. His completely enjoyable book are like his radio show. One word smoothly takes you to the next. His books are 2010, The Art of Persuasion, How Marketing Ate Our Culture, in 2017, This I Know, Marketing Lessons from Under the Influence, and 2021, My Best Mistakes, Epic Fails, and Silver Linings. Thank you for joining us on Art on the Air. Aloha and welcome, Terry. It's very nice to meet you. Well, thank
4: you. It's great to be here.
0: I don't usually like the word fan, but I do listen to your show most of the time if I wake up at 6.30 on uh, uh, Saturday. So that's when I first hooked into it on uh, the other station here in Chicago, it was like, oh my gosh, this is very unique. It had all these unique production values. So uh, it was very interesting. So I always try to catch that. But if I miss it, then I can also go to your podcast. So, But welcome to Art in the Air. What our audience wants to know is kind of your origin story, and uh, you spell it out very well on your website, but we'd like you to tell us about that. I always like to say how you got from where you were to where you are now. So tell us all about Terry O'Reilly.
4: You know, I grew up in a small mining town five hours north of Toronto in northern Ontario. And it's amazing when I think back because my high school in grades 9 to 13 had a, a television and film course. We had full studios, full equipment. You know, in a small mining town, that is just uh, unheard of, but I was very fortunate. So I got the bug for broadcast in that class. Then I went on to university in Toronto at Ryerson University to study radio and television and film. The funny thing was, I had no interest in radio. I only wanted to do television because that's all I knew from my high school years. The first year was radio, second year was television, third year was film, and I felt the first year was such a waste of my time. (laughs) Which is so ironic considering where I am today. But I uh, kind of fell in love with radio a little bit in uh, university. Then when I uh, got out of university, it was the 1981 recession. So it was a little tough to find a job. I sent out 60 resumes to advertising agencies around the country because I knew I wanted to be an ad writer. And I got back 61 rejection letters, which is a <laughs> historic. That one place rejected me twice, just in case I didn't get the message with the first letter. But I managed to get a job at a small radio station in a, in a tiny town. And uh, I literally, it was the only job I could find writing ads. And, and it was there that I literally fell in love with radio. I got to make a lot of mistakes I got to do a lot of interesting things. I really answered to no one. I was the sole copy chief at this little radio station. So I really had a lot of freedom. From there, I went to a small advertising agency in that area. I worked there for about two years. And then I made my way back to Toronto and got my first job at a big advertising agency as an ad writer. And I spent about 10 years in advertising agency life as a writer and creative director, and then in 1990, I co-founded a radio and television production company called Pirate. So advertising agencies became our clients. So I kind of moved out of the advertising agency world and became a service uh, vendor, so to speak, to advertising agencies where we would do all the sound and music and direct voiceovers for television and radio commercials. And every year I would put on what I would call is a, a creative radio seminar. So I would rent a theater in downtown Toronto, I would invite 200 young green ad writers, I would feed them breakfast, (laughs) feed them lunch, have an open bar at the end of the day, and I would stand on that stage for seven hours and tell them everything I had ever learned about radio. Because I was directing 500 commercials a year for almost 25 years, so I saw so many great solutions, so many great examples of great writing, I saw a lot of dead ends. So, I talked about script structure, humor versus uh, uh, drama, uh, word counts, uh, using sound effects, all of that. How to present radio, because it's the toughest medium to present in a boardroom, because you can't just hold it up like you can a print ad or a storyboard for a TV spot. And one day, a friend of mine who used to come out to those seminars um, said to me, You know, that would make a great radio show. And I said, mm-hmm. Who would ever air that? And he said, CBC, and I said the advertising free CBC would, write, would air a show on, on advertising. And he said, "I think they aired that one," and uh, we helped, we laughed, and you know. Um, then I left that day, and I couldn't get it out of my mind. And a couple of days later, a friend of mine who was also at that lunch said to me, "Do you want to go pitch that idea to the CBC? You know, let's just see if they would buy it." So we got a meeting at CBC. We got into the boardroom and the pitch was really simple. It was just, you know, advertising is kind of like architecture. It's everywhere in your life. Most people hate it. They think it's intrusive and annoying and irritating. But in reality, it's a fascinating business because it's the study of human nature. And I said, uh, I am not a journalist or an academic or a pundit. I'm I'm a working ad man in the trenches. So I have access and I have stories.
2: It's so interesting. You know, ads are so pervasive right now that I cease to see them until I do. You know, like there's one that is so compelling that it catches my attention. But it's mostly are they're lost in a sea of, you know, advertising. That's what we're lost in now, I think.
4: Exactly right. And CBC took the show and here we are. That was uh, 19 years ago.
2: Wow. So I would like to take you kind of way back again to childhood. So did you grow up in a family that liked to laugh a lot because you approach everything with such a great sense of humor and humanity. And I was wondering if that was at the kitchen table.
4: <laughs> you know what, my parents were a great audience. My parents loved <laughs> to laugh. And my dad is a great TV movie fanatic. So we, the sound of my dad laughing in the living room, watching a movie and a TV show is one of my great memories.
2: Yeah, my dad had a very astute sense of humor, you know, not like the belly laugh on the floor kind, but he did keep us laughing as well. I really appreciate growing up in a laughing household. (laughs) Yeah,
0: me too. Well, Terry, you uh, produce this from, and you say this every week, the Tearstream trailer. Tell us a little bit about that. That's your own, like, recording studio. Is that actually in an Airstream trailer?
4: It is, and I'm sitting in that right now. Um, My wife and I moved out of Toronto, out into the country. We had a beautiful country property. But that meant I would have to drive two hours into Toronto every day for recording on recording days. So that was a little over five hours of driving a day just to record a half hour radio show. In it. And I did it for probably 10 or 12 years.
1: Wow. And
4: it was killing me because the, tra- the uh, gridlock in Toronto traffic is unbelievable. It's kind of like L.A. And one day. My wife and I were having breakfast and we were talking about Airstream trailers. And I'm not a trailer guy, but I love the aesthetic of Airstream trailers. Just (laughs) just so great looking. And my wife said to me one day, could you build a recording studio in an Airstream trailer? And I stopped and I thought, oh my God, what, what a great idea that is. So we started our hunt for an Airstream trailer. I wanted a vintage 60s era. It's a 1969 trailer that I'm in right now. And then I t- started my hunt for someone who knew how to restore a trailer and also knew how to build a recording studio inside one. And I found the perfect guy to do it. And my wife and I hauled the trailer out to him. He was in Nova Scotia, believe it or not. We had never hauled a trailer before in our life. We had to, and at one point we had to get it on a ferry. So that was uh, challenging. <laughs> but uh, he built a beautiful, it's a beautiful space to work in. And it's, it's ideal. It's got three forms of heating, air conditioning, soundproof. It's beautiful.
0: Wow, so this is kind of like the family business too you uh you have I think your wife is involved in kind of management and also you have other people that are involved with uh, producing the under the influence
4: It is a family business it's the apostrophe podcast company, <clears throat> so my wife and two of our three daughters are uh the partners in the company and you know how everybody has a superpower, and our collective superpowers will really complemented each other, where what I'm really bad at, my wife is really good at it, and so on, and my daughters (laughs) are are brilliant, and we just love working together.
0: So the family (laughs) business is a great partnership (laughs) there.
4: yeah, (laughs) We we just love it. We love it.
0: Now, you have other podcasts as part of the Apostles Podcast Network.
4: That is correct. We have a number of them. Um, One of them is called We Regret to Inform You, the rejection podcast, where we talk about Famous people, you know, when you look at a famous person, you think, wow, they're so talented, it all came together quickly, and now they're rich and famous. But their stories are interesting, because so many of them uh, face debilitating career rejections, one after another, sometimes for decades. And we uh, kind of analyze what they went through and how they overcame all those objections. And then that, that show really stops the moment they become famous, which is interesting.
2: Yeah, I wanna say thankfully art is a subjective as well as ads because I love the story where one company you work for did not like what you presented and then you presented it to another one and it was embraced and just, you know, skyrocketed. So we're it some, is so kind subjective. of ties back to those those stories of rejection, but persevering. And the ad industry,
4: by the way, is is built on rejection. I mean, you, you present ads every single day and most of your ads, probably seven out of 10 of your ideas get shot down on a daily basis in an advertising agency, either by the creative director or by the client. So it's, it's built on rejection. So you, you have to, to develop a really thick skin and be able to go back to the drawing board time after time.
2: I really love in. My best mistakes, the Scotty Bowman story, it actually had me weeping. It was, I don't know why, but it's just the way you write. It's just so emotional.
4: That was a great story. That, uh, and he was uh, kind enough to just get on the phone with me and uh, tell me, take me right through that story. He was, uh, he was a lovely guy.
2: Wow. Yeah. Well, it comes through in your story. It was very beautiful. Terry, I'd
0: be interested in your take on the uh, TV series Mad Men, uh, how that really, and again, that was set in New York. But uh, <laughs> what, what do you think about that? Was that a pretty accurate reflection of that in the 60s? Or is that, uh, you know, obviously it's television drama, but what's your take
4: on it? I, I, love, I love that show. I loved it not just because the writing and the characters were so great, but it really wasn't an accurate depiction of the advertising industry. Now, it was era-specific, as you say. So, you know, the amount of drinking, et cetera, uh, you know, may take place still. <laughs> but
2: uh, but the storyboards, you
4: know, the storyboards
2: yeah. are very accurate, I imagine.
4: Well, I, I loved it because it was accurate. You know, Matthew uh, Weiner must have had somebody on his staff that had spent time in an ad agency. Unlike every other depiction of advertising I see in movies and TV which is so unreal starting with Bewitched and onward you know but it's always so it, it's a, a layman's take on the business rather than an insider's take but he did it right
0: would you ever think about doing something taking under the influence as a television thing? I mean, I've obviously your studio there probably is not TV. Of course in this day and age, you can use zoom and that's good enough sometimes for TV, but you have a personality that would work, I think in that medium. Uh, you ever think about that?
4: You know, we have been approached over the years a couple of times by production companies thinking about it, but nothing's ever really, you know, uh, gelled as far as that goes. But, uh, I would be open to it. I mean, the the funny thing is that so much of what I talk about on the show is visual. So when I'm doing television commercials, I have to narrate them so people at home can hear them, or if I'm talking about print ads or billboards or whatever it is, I mean, it, literally 80% of the show is visual, and uh, and, I ha- and I'm and i doing it on radio or podcasts. So take
0: us through the process of putting together an episode. You have to concept how you and your family team work together, so production meeting and everything. So take us the process of, okay, this is where we're going to start and take us through until you actually record it.
4: Coming up with ideas for the show is the easiest part because the advertising industry is so active around the world. There's always great stories. So that's easy. Research is the toughest part of our show. So I will, for example, settle on an episode theme. I'll do some initial research to put together a research assignment document. I'll send it to one of our four researchers I'll give them two weeks to, to chase very specific stories. So they I'll say, here's the 10 stories I want you to chase. They'll send me back probably about a hundred pages of research. I'll have done almost the equivalent on my end. So I'll, it'll take me two or three days to go through, you know, 150 or 200 pages of research. I'll try and I'll figure out the show in my head. I'll start writing the show, which takes me about two days. Then I, Try to comb the knots out of that script uh, on the next morning. then I'll record it that afternoon. Then I'll send my recording to my sound engineer and we'll have a chat about how I hear the show, and he'll, you know, we'll just talk about because our show, as you said earlier, Larry, is very it's it, I wanted it to be sonically great, not just content great. So we have lots of sound effects and lots of music and clips of commercials, and i'll I'll bring in actors to do funny little bits for me. So Jeff, our chief engineer, sound engineer, will put the show together. You'll send it back to me. I'll listen to it. I'll make some notes. We'll tweak it a bit, and then it'll be ready. So it takes about six days every week to put together that 27-minute show.
0: And how many shows do you do a year?
4: I'm a January to June show on CBC, so that means I do 26 shows. And then in the summer, we'll do repeats from past seasons So, I'm kind of on the air probably 10 months a year. And then in our our podcasting world, we're constantly putting out shows and old content and bonus episodes. So, our our podcasts go on 12 months a year.
0: That keeps you pretty busy then. So,
4: (laughs) it is, it is, I call it joyful stress.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Daughters, the researchers?
4: No, they're not. We have, uh, no, they, uh, one of my daughters hosts we regret to inform you my other daughter is a director so she directs that show and then they do all the social media and we have other shows on the on our uh, podcast network as well but it's uh, yeah it's uh, i love doing the show as i said i'm starting my 19th season but it is it is a, it is a beast it's all <laughs> consuming yeah
0: i guess we can empathize we do Uh, show we do shows uh, all year round we do two usually two interviews for every show plus a a spotlight interview so yeah I understand and of course every week the only team we have is us and I do all the production and editing so it's like yeah I understand this is my retirement gig so anyway so (laughs) (laughs) you know something you said brought up you know I worked in theater for many years and about rejection and I always tell actors that they would go to about 30 auditions for every job they get i mean a working actor i said but the one audition you might go to sometimes a few years like you remember that person that audition for blah 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 blah, and they call them back so there's sometimes that does that appear in the ad industry a lot of times you know an idea that was sort of for something else or a similar product they say you know i like that but maybe we can use that for whatever
4: Oh for sure you should never throw away a good idea just because a client didn't like it in that moment of t- in time. Also, you know, as a director of commercials, I'd be sitting in studios with actors and we there's a lot of downtime between takes where you know the clients may be chatting about a script thing and you're sitting there chatting with the actors waiting for the the script change and you know I would listen to funny little things actors would say or they do funny little voices or they you know they would in the course of just chit-chatting and I'd always make a mental note of it. And, you know, I would hear somebody do, for example, uh, they could maybe do, maybe they whistle really funny, you know, <laughs> I'll just make a mental note of it. And then I would hire them to do that maybe two years down the road, you know? So it was always a, a matter of, of, making mental notes of what's good and what's great and not even in a formal audition.
2: So Terry is the next book in the works.
4: It is. Um, the topic I'm chasing in this book I'm writing currently is people who go against the grain. in other words, people who don't uh, take the path well traveled that they they decide to you know go in go in through the back door on an issue or a problem or a career where everybody's telling them they're crazy and insane, and that decision actually was the best decision that ever happened to them, yeah. That's, That's wonderful.
0: <laughs> Any other podcast ideas coming up that you would be involved with, or is this just all consuming?
4: Well, this my uh, under the influence is all consuming. Um, we have a, a number of other shows on our network, as I was mentioning, that are done by yeah. outside folks that we put on our platform that we market. So the the apostrophe podcast network is a busy company too, because we have about five or six podcasts. And we do, as I said, all the marketing and all the promotion, and uh, and we have meetings with our sales teams every week. And so it's a it's, a, it's a, a, a busy company.
0: You know, with the quality of the show under the influence, I'm surprised that other people like PRI or something like that hasn't picked that up to distribute it more uh, in the United States. And, you know, it's lonesome here in the Chicago uh, public radio station, but, you know, I'm surprised more stations haven't picked it up. Is there a way what? that might reach out and do that?
4: You know what... Uh, I've often thought that, too, because so much of what I talk about is Madison Avenue. It's just so uh, the content is so uh, U.S. centric. The problem I've heard in in feedback is because we're a half hour show, there's not a lot of, a lot of other half hour shows to pair us with in, in a typical hour of broadcast time. I don't know if that's the truth, but that's what I hear back.
0: Yeah, that's that's kind of true in public broadcasting and things like that. They tend to like an hour hour long, or actually fifty eight thirty. But <laughs> uh, t- pairing, of course, like I guess one marketing idea you could do is put uh, pair your show with one of the uh, encore shows, and then you have an hour.
4: You know what? That's that is a good idea because <laughs> a lot of shows that we've done. I mean, we have, we have we have a huge archive now. We have almost twenty years of archives over you know almost four hundred episodes there that you probably could pair them up in interesting ways.
0: Yeah, I know. Often you refer to previous shows like and that are a similar topic to when you're doing that. So, so any new topics that you can share with us that are on the horizon for because you're coming up with January. That's when you're going to start new production.
4: We did. Uh, I rarely do this, but we did a live podcast recording at a podcast festival recently. So that's going to be one of our shows. We we rarely do it. We did a big production where I had all the team up on the stage. We had a live band to play our theme song so that was a lot of fun so that will be one of the first shows uh when we're back in january i'm working on uh, a show about cannabis marketing right now because that's a brand new industry that's spending a lot of money so that's i either do shows on things i know a lot about or i do shows on things i know very little about so mm-hmm. i can learn about it cannabis being one of those things so i have wanted to explore that and i'm doing a two-parter on demonstration commercials. So if you think back to all the great demonstration commercials you've seen in your oh, life, like the crazy completely. guy puts the, the one drop of glue on his helmet and then <laughs> suspends him. Remember that classic commercial right. the, <laughs> that we're doing? A, I've asked. I canvassed a dozen of the top creative directors in the business and asked them, what are the best demonstration commercials you've ever seen? And I took that list and built a two-parter show out of it. Oh, how exciting
0: I don't think Vegematic yep. would be part
4: of that though <laughs> well, you know it's funny, I didn't do any of those kind of infomercial <laughs> spots, although you could right they are the best demonstrations of all time when you think about it, appeal, yep, appeal, yeah, they yeah, were really Popeil. out there. <laughs> The master of uh, of the influence.
0: <laughs> so, Terry, your, your upcoming season, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, anything else you have on the horizon and our last minute left and how people can find you online, both Apostrophe and your own uh, podcast, Under the Influence.
4: Um, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram or X, I guess, and, and Instagram at my handle is Terry o. Influence at Terry o. Influence. Our Apostrophe Podcast Company. You can just search that on Google. That's easy to find Apostrophe Podcasts, and uh, you can see what we're up to, what we're doing. We have lots of interesting little tidbits on our on our website about our shows. Um, and if you're interested in the in the show itself, you can dive into our archives on any uh, podcast platform. There'll be, as I said, almost 400 episodes there that are pretty evergreen. That right. are, are kind of fun. Yeah
0: they are well you know terry we really appreciate and i know i especially do because i i try to listen on saturday mornings i mean right along with scott simon there on npr terry o'reilly from under the influence you can find him at terryoreilly.ca thank you so much for coming on out of the air and sharing your life experience
2: thanks for having me thank you so much
0: art of the air listeners do you have a suggestion for a possible guest on our show whether it's an artist musician author gallery theater concert or some other artistic endeavor that you are aware of or a topic of interest to our listeners email us at aota at breck.com that's aota at breck B-R-E-C-H dot com Art on the Air encourages our loyal listeners to support this station by making a monthly sustaining pledge so we may continue to bring you this great program. Hi, this is singer-songwriter
5: Kenny White, and you are listening to Art on the Air, Lakeshore Public Radio 89.1 FM and on WVLP 103.1 FM.
2: pleased to welcome Muriel Anderson to Art on the Air. Muriel is a guitarist, harp guitarist, and composer who embraces music from all over the world. You will find yourself smiling and singing along when you hear the joy of her music throughout the array of styles. Her CD, Night Light, was one of the top 10 CDs of the decade by Guitar Player magazine. Her Acoustic Chef CD of music around the world includes a cookbook of recipes and stories to go along with each tune. Her Heartstrings recording accompanied the astronauts on the space Shuttle. Her newly released CD is Sailing Dreams, and it also has a board game to go along with it. Muriel is also the first woman to have won the National Fingerstyle Guitar Championship. We have been listening to Sailing Dreams 3. Thank you for joining us on Art on the Air. Aloha and welcome, Muriel. It's really wonderful to meet you. Oh, thank you. Nice to meet you, too.
0: Well, Muriel, how we like to start off our interviews is kind of like explore your background, your Bio. I always like to say your uh, origin story, how you got from where you were to where you're now. So tell us all about Muriel.
6: Yeah, well, uh, it seems like music was something that I thought was always in the air. We, we always had it in, in the family. Everyone would sing folk songs in the car, and, and uh, I would listen to the music that the birds made outside and try to imitate that. And, uh, when I, a friend of the family was throwing away a guitar, I, I picked it picked it up and picked the trash out of the sound hole and tightened the <laughs> remaining strings and uh, started figuring out melodies. And the lady, that was Adele Knight, I remember, she said, oh, you can have that guitar. I was just throwing that away. And so my parents realized when I was in the backseat of the car and, and still figuring out melodies and, and that they we're going to have a hard time getting it out of my hands. And so they signed me up for folk guitar lessons at the Jones School of Folk Music. And I was uh, eight years old at the time. Wow. And uh, so it just it just kind of came, came naturally. I just had fun
2: with it. So it's just what I did for fun. I guess it's still what I do for fun. <laughs> so did the school support your playing within that system? Or was that specifically, you know an after-school oh, it, it was a, Yeah, an after-school thing. There wasn't guitar classes in the
6: school. Uh, I did join the school jazz band. And so having played folk music and bluegrass, you know, up, up, up until then, I, um, you know, all of a sudden there were all these strange and unusual chords. <laughs> <laughs> and so I tried to figure out how the guitar worked. And, and so I kind of figured out music theory on my own in a, in a different way. I ended up publishing a book called uh, Chord constellations, and later one called "All Chords in All Positions." Uh, mm-hmm. By the way, I, I figured out the system, and uh, so it—you it, know—it seems like everything has kind of fallen into place in, in strange and miraculous ways. <laughs> uh, and and that includes this new CD and and, uh, and board game, like you said, that is attached to it. The board game's the more important part, of course. You know? <laughs> uh, I think equal. Yeah, it's, it's, and this is a new thing. I never thought I would be sailing. And uh, my boyfriend is an avid sailor, and there we went. And, and uh, just before leaving from uh, Long Island up to the coast of Maine, I had this dream. And in the dream was a song. And I could remember every part of the song, the melody, the lyrics, the harmony, two guitars, the bass and drums. And the singer sounded kind of like Susie Bogus. And what you just heard was exactly what I heard in the dream. I recreated it. And I was so excited when Susie said that she would sing it for us.
2: That's so beautiful. Um, that's,
6: that's, and that's the, the way I figured, okay, I think this trip is gonna result in an album. That's what kicked so it off.
2: when was that first? When did you first start composing? Around what age? Uh, I composed, um, the. let's
6: see, since uh, kindergarten. Yeah uh i still remember the first song i wrote uh i wrote it on the piano i didn't have a guitar yet it was called ding dong and i found the <laughs> melody notes of the doorbell and um i would do it for you but it was slightly embarrassing oh.
2: <laughs> i think it would be charming but, but that's a really, really
6: oh now i've just walked into this so i start <laughs> off with, like the most embarrassing thing that i could do you know here is as, um, um, it, it just it went like this. I found that that the notes of the doorbell made this chord on the piano, and and then so I wrote lyrics to it and goes, "Ding dong, ding dong, ding dong, ding dong. That's how the doorbell rings. Ding dong, ding dong, ding dong, ding dong. That's how the doorbell rings, 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 rings. That's how the doorbell
2: rings." Oh,
0: that's very sweet. Oh, oh my that gosh!
2: Is so wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think it's going to be. It's so. Imp- I think it's so important for every. But he, you know, to learn these beginnings of inspiration, and you know, they can start very young. I you know my daughter wrote her first little book at four years old, oh, so wow. she's still writing.
0: So, Muriel, you play yeah. a unique <laughs> instrument called the harp guitar. I mean, you also play standard guitars, but uh, tell us a little bit about how that's different. Unfortunately, our audience can't see it. They they will if they go to your website and everything like that. But tell us a little bit about and how you got the harp guitar how you got into that
6: well it' like most things that I, I was hearing some music some music that I wanted to write and arrange and um uh, when I uh I wanted something like like that note that wasn't on my guitar so I wanted these extra low ringing notes and I'd seen a picture of a harp guitar and I thought that's the instrument that could do the sound that I'm looking for and so, it, it, in addition to uh, the, the, the part that's, that's like a regular guitar, it also has sub bass strings that go down the scale. And I, I tune this one uh-huh. lower than any man has gone before. <laughs> 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 um, sometimes I, you know, bring that down in, an extra note or so for the for the lowest. And uh, after I was playing that for a while, I, I got together with John Doan. Uh, we, we, uh, a lot of us who play this instrument get together once a year at a gathering. We call it the harp guitar gathering. And John Doane also had super troubles on his uh, mm-hmm. harp guitar. So the next time I had... Uh, Uh, opportunity to have one of these instruments built for me, Uh, I asked for it with a super treble. So you can do a melody like a, or you could do it here, gives you a whole
2: other range with the the sub bass of the super trebles. That's so gorgeous. So with composing, I and mean, I'm sure it works both ways, but maybe it's just one way with you. Does it start in your head as you're taking a walk, or does it start when you're holding your instrument? You know, the, the songs write themselves in all different ways.
6: And sometimes they just come as a gift, like this song did. Even when I was in my dream, I thought to myself, oh, this is a gift, this song that was given to me. Um, but it was only uh, the second time in my life that when I woke up, I could remember it so precisely. I could remember so much of it. Usually it's the first thing that disappears when you wake
0: up. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's why you should write something down right away. Well, one of the songs from your uh, new CD Sailing Dreams is called Captain Noah. And uh, we want to listen to that, but we, there's also a story that goes with that. So tell us about that.
6: Yes, when uh, after the Sailing Dreams uh, came to me, I thought, "Okay, as I'm as I'm sailing along, I've got to capture some of our beautiful experiences and some of our adventures." And there was one time we were looking for a, a little place out of the uh, this oncoming storm, so we, there was a, a place in between islands, and it was kind of foggy. We we anchored there, and then when the fog lifted, we noticed that there was a schooner, a beautiful big schooner, anchored near us, and we took out the telescope and, and looked there and it said it said the Stephen Tabor, 1871, said on there. Oh, <laughs> well, it looked like something out of a movie. So I, I said to Brian, Brian, let's pretend that we're Pirates I mean go over and take over the ship, and so he said, okay, and we took our little patched up dinghy and I put my guitar on my back as a weapon, and we rode over there, and I, I yelled out, "Who's your captain? We're taking over the ship <laughs> <laughs> and To our surprise, this man came over to the side and said, "I'm Captain Noah, and I need a day off, so come on board and so we climbed up the rigging and uh, saw there were these big kegs, and I was kind of thinking, "Well, is there rum in those kegs by chance?" And he said, oh, "No, it's just water." And so, uh, so, but we, uh, I took my guitar out, and to my surprise, he took out his guitar and his harmonica. He was a blues player, and we played oh. until the sun came oh. up. came up. It was the sun went, yeah went down. And that, yeah. Another gift. And So I thought, well, I've got to write a blues tune then for this, this album. And so I had, I had the beginning of the tune and I went to my friend Phil Keggy and I said, I want to turn this into something more bluesy. And so he came up with a great bridge and a wonderful part. And then as I was listening to it, I started thinking about what happened, the story, and it just sort of came out as lyrics. And I went to another friend, Mark Kibble, the great lead singer of Take Six, and and I said, can you just kind of channel a pirate as you're singing this? And (laughs) we did just a marvelous job of the lead, and I'm I'm singing harmony.
0: That sounds great. Well, let's take a listen to it. This is Captain Noah from Sailing Dreams with Muriel Anderson.
5: Now just us two. Looks like we're gonna have a little more crew. Knife in my teeth and guitar on my back. Climb the rigging just like that. Hey captain, captain Noah, we're taking over your ship. Give it up. 50-some years She's been sailing these seas yeah. Captain Gill and Captain Sharp at the wheel Now I'm asking you please Hey, Captain Captain Noah You can take a day off your ship Get on down on this mint jammer A yard vessel with that tumble home About spread on this old schooner mm, She'll be taking us along Hey captain, Captain Noah Let us come aboard your ship The crew to hoist that gaff free uh-huh. mm-hmm. in those big kicks, maybe there's one last jigger of room just for me hey captain captain Noah how about we board your ship We got some instruments coming.
0: Captain Noah from Sailing Dreams, Meryl Anderson.
2: (laughs) I know, I love the story behind it. Yeah, the story
0: just makes that. That's that's amazing.
2: (laughs) So when did you first become exposed to fingerstyle guitar playing? Because it's so very unique. Well, I started with fingerpicking and flatpicking at the same time. We
6: did both, and uh, the Jones School of Folk Music was kind of an offshoot of the Old Town School of Folk Music in Chicago. Uh, so we, uh, we used that songbook and just played and sang these just wonderful songs, and and then I learned some fills, and then uh, then for Christmas one year, uh, my parents gave me a Doc Watson album, Doc Watson in Nashville, and when I put that on the turntable, I just couldn't take it off. It's it, I was enthralled by the warmth and the power and this amazing. Uh, guitar playing. And so that's what really inspired me to take the guitar one step further.
2: Yeah, it is so mesmerizing. I, you know, we had a concert once and it was maybe an hour of, and he didn't sing at all. And it was just him and the guitar and it was just so captivating. It's just the warmth that you just spoke about was there. Yes. And then later on, uh, Chet Atkins was a big influence. When
6: uh, After I met Chet, actually. So um, I was taking mandolin lessons from uh, Jethro Burns out in Evanston, Illinois. And I I played this tune, you know, the one that goes... (laughs) And then Jethro said... You got to meet my brother-in-law, Chet Atkins. He recorded that too, <laughs> and so that was that was the intro. Did you play with Chet? Uh, yes, he, Chet uh, had me come up and play with him on uh, some of his concerts. He said sometimes he liked a little break in the middle of the show, so he'd have a special guest come up, and uh, we did some duets, and then I sometimes would do a solo. Um, but he was very casual. It was just kind of like being with your uncle. Uh, so it was. Um, just a, a, an experience that I really treasure.
0: Now, just briefly tell us about your game. We actually only have about a minute or so left here before we listen to you, the final song that we're going to play, I'm Sailing, I'm Sailing. Tell us about the game.
6: Well, Brian and I were trying to think of how do we capture, the share this experience of, of this sailing trip in a bigger way. And it was Brian's idea to turn it into a, a board game. And so... In the board game, there are two winners, the one who gets the most experiences, and good and bad experiences both count the same because they're both (laughs) fodder for good tales to tell. And then also as you're sailing around, sometimes you go fishing, and so the one who gets the most fish and lobster, uh, which both count the same, uh, only in this game. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, Then that's that's the second winner. And you draw uh, cards, some are multiple choice, where you learn a little bit about sailing or about the, the area. And this, and some are uh, experiences. It's and real way. quick,
0: tell us about how people can find you on the web and social media. And
6: Okay. Um, people can just go to murielanderson.com. This is a pre release, actually. And so uh, we, we mail them immediately once we get the, the orders. And uh, it's, uh, yeah, you'll see it right on my site, murielanderson.com.
0: Well, I'm Sailing, I'm Sailing is going to uh, take us out. That's Muriel Anderson, a harp guitarist. new uh, album is called Sailing Dreams. You can find her at her website, murielanderson.com. Thank you so much for coming on Art of the Air and sharing your wonderful arts journey and music journey.
2: Yeah, completely enjoyable. Thank you. Thank you. I never thought I'd be Many
5: days on the open sea I'm sailing I'm sailing Never thought I'd say, life is once again my way, I'm sailing, I'm sailing, out on the sea, let me be, far away where troubles never find me. Took the chance, but in my dreams I was sailing, never thought I'd try something so unusual like running away with you, ooh, sailing free, far away where troubles never find. Isn't it a fact? Just when you think you got it all under your hat Life takes one left turn And love is on the, the
6: way. way Ever on the sea
5: Winds will change when near they that's something
0: to thank our guests this week on art on the air our weekly program covering the arts and arts events throughout northwest indiana and beyond art on the air is heard sunday at 7 p.m on lakeshore public media 89.1 fm also streaming live at lakeshorepublicmedia.org and is available on lakeshore public media's website as a podcast art on the air is also heard friday at 11 a.m and monday at 5 p.m on wvlp 103.1 fm streaming live at wvlp.org our spotlight interviews are heard every Wednesday on Lakeshore Public Media. Thanks to Tom Maloney, Vice President of Radio Operation for Lakeshore Public Media, and Greg Kovach, WVLP's Station Manager. Our theme music is by Billy Foster with a vocal by Renee Foster. Art on the Air is supported by an Indiana Arts Commission Arts Project Grant, South Shore Arts, and the National Endowment for the Arts. We'd like to thank our current underwriters for Lakeshore Public Media, Macaulay Real Estate and Valparaiso, Olga Patrician, Senior Broker and for WVLP, Walt Reitinger of Paragon Investments. So we may continue to bring you Art in the Air. We rely on you, our listeners and underwriters, for ongoing financial support. If you're looking to support Art on the Air, we have information on our website at breck.com AOTA, where you can find out how to become a supporter or underwriter of our program in whatever amount you are able. And like I say every week, don't give till it hurts. Give till it feels good. You'll feel so good about supporting Art on the Air.
1: Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. Express yourself through art and show the world your heart. You're in the know with Esther and Mary. Art on the air today. Stay in the know with Mary and Esther. Art on the air our way. Express yourself through art. And show the world your heart, express yourself you heart, and show the world your